0: All right. With all of that, uh, let me say a word of prayer for us uh, for the rest of the service, and then uh, our friend Jean Sue will be reading today's scripture over us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for uh, the service, God. This opportunity to come together and to worship together, to sing together, to pray together. God, we thank you for Rinalda and her heart. Lord and just her wisdom uh, and her, her her clarity, Lord of of the ways in which you speak to her, God and sharing that with us, Lord we thank you uh, and we we join her, we join together saying, save us, God, and we pray, God, that we feel glimpses, that we see glimpses of your saving power, of your grace, of your love in this service, God. Be with me as I preach. Be with us as we commune together at the Lord's table. And right now, Father, be with uh, Jean Sue as she reads from your word, Lord, a a sacred uh, ritual, Lord, to hear from you. So, God, please speak through Jean Sue and use these words, God, to pierce our hearts, God, and to set our minds on you. We pray all of this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: The reading today comes from Acts 9, 18 to 30. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Amen. And um, let me just say, uh, Jeansu, I apologize. Uh, I know I asked you to prepare the ESV translation. What was on the screen was NIV. Uh, and so that's my fault, but you... Uh, pivoted well, and so thank you. Um, Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Today marks our 17th Sunday together, uh, which means it's been 17 weeks since we started this sermon series in the book of Acts, which means after today, uh, we have about 35 more Sundays together in this book. Now, up until this point, we've been focused on a growing community of God, a growing community of disciples. Peter Peter really stood out in the beginning as a man transformed by this revolutionary power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John and other disciples were at a side preaching and being arrested and preaching more and being split up and scattered. In recent weeks, we got to see briefly a a disciple named Philip who preached in the town of Samaria, who joined others to pray for Simon the Magician, and who then met an Ethiopian eunuch on a desert road in Acts chapter 8. And that meeting on that desert road uh, was Philip coming to, as as Dr. Elizabeth Rios described in her sermon here at Hope Hell's Kitchen a couple of weeks ago, uh, as a borderland moment. Now, in the midst of these stories, we we also began to see another person emerge in the book of Acts, a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, who he he hated followers of Christ. So much so, as you know, he witnessed the, the disciple Stephen being stoned to death, and we're told that he approved of it. We're told he threw men and women into prison for proclaiming Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And then last week, as we as we jumped into the opening of Acts 9, we learned that this man, Saul, Acquired written permission from the high chief priests to imprison and murder Christ's followers. With this permission, he was heading to a town called Damascus, about 150 miles from Jerusalem, when he was met by the Holy Spirit and he heard the voice of Jesus Christ. Three days later, a disciple in Damascus, Ananias, also heard the voice of Christ and he was compelled to visit Saul and to lay hands on him. And to pray for him. We ended with verse 18 last week, which Jean Sue read for us this morning to open the passage. Saul, who was blinded after his experience on the road to Damascus, was able to see. He was baptized and he regained his strength. And with that strength, with this newfound sight, with this rebirth through baptism, with the gift and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Saul slows down. He doesn't head right out to change the world. I love the second half of verse 19 where we're told Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. We don't know much about these days, but we can probably guess uh, it, was, it was probably a lot of Saul apologizing, Saul confronting his past, Saul doing his best to convince these disciples that he does not want to kill them. And based on his reaction to blindness that we saw last week, there was also probably a lot of prayer and fasting going on, and all of this happening together in community. And this prepares Saul for what's to come, for, for what we see in the remainder of this passage. And after spending however long he spends with the, these disciples doing whatever he's doing with them, we we come to this time then where he he begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, in the Jewish houses of worship, saying Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's that reality that really sets Saul apart from the man that he was just days earlier, a man who who hated Jesus Christ and his followers, a man who wanted to kill those followers. And now a man who stands in front of his Jewish brothers and sisters and says, Jesus is the Lord. He says, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, this, this can draw us back to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, in which he says that God made Jesus both the Lord and the Messiah. He is both the Lord of this earth, and he is the divine anointed one, the Son of God. And when Peter preached that, we're told that the thousands of people who heard it, that they were cut, they were pierced to their hearts. And they looked at Peter, and they looked at the other disciples, and they asked, what shall we do? What do we do with this? And here, however many years later, here is a man who, who likely heard about Peter's sermon, who likely heard about the growing community of God back then, who was seeing it happen in real time. He had heard about these hearts that were pierced. And all of these truths, they only enraged him more and more and more. But now he's the one who's actually proclaiming these truths. That as he says in verse 20, Jesus is the Son of God. He's not merely a good teacher, but he is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. And here I think we get to a point in this story that we're embedded in. We get to a point where this story speaks to us today. This story from 2,000 years ago speaks to us today in 2021. And and what I mean by that is because here as Saul's life changes, Saul is confronted with his new life and the reality that it is wrapped up in a question. Well, as we see in this passage, it's actually wrapped up in a couple of questions. The questions, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, who called upon his name, upon the name of Jesus? Has he not come here for this purpose, this purpose of havoc, of murder, of anger? Has he not come here to bring these Christ followers bound before the chief priests? All of a sudden, people see Saul. They see his life, and his life becomes a question. What happened? Who are you? You know, they're simple questions on the surface, but but truly complex. They're complex because we're not taught. We're, we're because we're talking about a life. We're talking about a human being, a person. And in this story, Saul's life, this person, he's a former murderer who is now working with, living with the people he would have otherwise wanted to kill. So sure, it is a simple question, what happened? But it is so complex in what it truly means. You know, for those of us who might be on a similar faith journey of feeling a a powerful conversion or or a powerful switch, as you think about your own story, learning who Jesus Christ is and, and reaching the point where you confess that he is the Lord of your life or where maybe you've been on your own Damascus road and that God met you. You know, I shared a bit about one particular part of my journey last week, no matter what your story is, our lives get wrapped up in that same question. What happened? Who are you now? I mentioned during announcements after service, we do a time of fellowship. And and last week in that time, uh, I shared that I was preparing to preside over a funeral of a young man who uh, died suddenly and unexpectedly uh, and as I prepared, and as I went to the funeral, as I spoke, and as others shared stories at the service, we were, we were all essentially asking the same question. Who was this man? Who was he? And this, this was a man who, who faced plenty of trials in his life, who faced the reality of, of much brokenness. And yet, those things aren't what answered that question. He was a single man, and yet that status, that didn't answer the question of who he was. While I and others sought to answer that question, who was he? We all described him in different ways, a man of light, a man of joy, a man of, of humor, of determination. But even those wonderful descriptions, they didn't truly answer that question. Because when we ask a question like that, we want to not only know the, the type of person he was or, or who you are, but we want to know why. Why was this man a man of light? in the face of brokenness? Why was this man a man of joy in the face of pain? Why was this man a man of determination in the face of obstacles? And for everyone who spoke at this funeral, we all pointed toward his journey, toward learning who God was and what that truth meant for his life and how that truth changed him. Uh, Yesterday, uh, on Saturday, I had the privilege of, of officiating a wedding. So it's been a busy week um, and one that's put me on a bit of a spectrum of emotions. Uh, and though I didn't ask a question like this quite as, ex- as explicitly, I do think the ceremony, the, the experience sought to provide a glimpse into who these two people are. And for these two people, though, you could ask, who are they? And you could answer that in a lot of different ways. You know, they're, they're successful. They're, they're part of big, loving families. They, they have a, a community of dear friends. The beauty of a wedding of two people coming together like that is that as wonderful as those other things are, the focus is that here in this moment, God is bringing two of his creations, bringing them together as one flesh, as we're told in Genesis chapter 2. You know, that no longer are these two friends or two fiancés, these two people, these two individuals, they become one. That's why so often you hear at the end of a wedding what God has joined together let no man put asunder. And so, as you ask, well, who are these people, or or who is this couple? The truest answer you land on will also answer the question: Well, what happened in their life? And if you speak to this couple, you'd hear practical answers that that they met, they they started texting, they started dating. That's what happened. Uh, but if you sit with them and listen, if you know their stories, you begin to hear: Well, what happened was that God was moving, and He was moving in ways that neither of them had expected, or or even necessarily wanted at the time, in ways that led them to get engaged during a global pandemic, to planning a wedding in a city that was just a year ago this month was the epicenter of this pandemic. What happened was that God took a hold of their lives individually and brought them together as one. Now, I I know both of these illustrations are focused on, on, on Christian faith, and you may be thinking, well, that can't be that can't be the only way to answer the question who are you or what happened in your life to make you to make you who you are and that's certainly true but i do believe that regardless of what you might personally believe that there are significant divine unexplainable moments in our lives that we have to examine that we really have to reflect on that we have to confront as we ask those questions, as we consider our own journeys. I have to imagine that that is what Saul did with the disciples. I have to imagine that Saul did that immediately with Ananias, after Ananias laid his hand on him and prayed for him, and the scales fell from his eyes. Because the the, the truth is, regardless if, if we do that work, or we don't do that work, regardless if we ask these questions or we don't ask these questions, other people will. Other people will see us, the world will see you, and they will ask those questions. We see that in this passage. I think Saul has definitely done the work, right? Before that, even before spending time with the disciples, he prays and he fasts. He's no doubt crying out to God, what in the world just happened on the road to Damascus? And who am I now? Who am I, Saul of Tarsus, who is getting ready to go on a rampage in Damascus? Who am I now? And whatever answer he came to, it led him to going into the synagogues, the places where Christ was not being proclaimed the Messiah, places where the old Saul would have had, had the red carpet rolled out for him. He goes into these places and he says, Jesus Christ is the son of God. Hearing these words, seeing this changed man, all who heard him were told, not some, but all who heard him were amazed. And they said, essentially, Who is this guy? What happened to him? Is this not the man who wanted to destroy Jesus and his followers? It's in the face of those questions that arise in verse 21 that we are told Saul's response in verse 22. That he increases in strength. And he continues to confound, to baffle the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ that he was in fact the Messiah. You see, Saul knew who he was. He knew what happened. That, that, that He knew that experience on the Damascus Road would forever change his life because he knows it completely and forever changed him in that moment. It now defines who Saul is. It now answers that question, who is this man? And so when others ask these questions, when others are amazed or baffled or confounded, Saul's already done that, that work, so his confidence grows. He's strengthened, and he leans in even more to proclaiming this good news of this Jesus who lived, who died, who rose from the dead, and who, in, in recent memory at the time of what's happening here in these verses, this Jesus who ascended into heaven, where he eventually parted the skies and spoke to Saul, changing his life forever. Now, while Saul responds with strength and covenants, others respond with what? They respond with anger. Now Saul the killer, who has become Saul the brother, Saul the preacher, he's now being pursued to be killed for the things that he's saying. We see this in verse 23. The religious leaders plotted to kill him and somehow Saul became aware of it. And so this former killer now is being chased, this man of, of I think, perceived earthly strength and power now is escaping death by being lowered out of a window in a basket. It's a very vulnerable, fragile picture. You can imagine Saul traveling the road to Damascus with papers in hand that give him permission, give him the legal authority to kill anyone proclaiming the name of of Jesus. And then here is the same man being lowered out of a window in a basket because he is proclaiming the name of Jesus. And then from there, we're told Saul meets another group of people who also respond and try to answer these questions. But this time it's a group of disciples. So this time he's, he's back in Jerusalem where, where he had received that written approval to arrest and kill any follower of Christ. He's traveled back to Jerusalem to join this community of followers of Christ. And they all wonder, who is this man? And we're told that they're all afraid of him because they didn't believe he was all of a sudden one of them. They didn't know. But there's one disciple, we're told, who took a leap of faith, who understood who this man, this Saul, could be. If Saul truly met Christ, this disciple knew that that would change him, this disciple named Barnabas. And we first met Barnabas at the end of chapter 4 of Acts. As Peter and John are preaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as this community of Christ followers is growing exponentially, as this community is living life together, sharing in needs and resources, having all things in common, Barnabas arrives on the scene in Jerusalem. We don't know much about him, but Acts 4 tells us he's a Levite from Cyprus, which means he was part part of the dispersed, scattered Jewish people. He was a man of the diaspora. He lived about 250 miles away in Cyprus, but we're told he sold his land and brought that money he earned, and he gave it to the apostles. It's a really brief, succinct, beautiful story of generosity, of sacrifice. But then we don't hear about Barnabas until here in chapter 9. And here, Like Ananias did last week in the opening of this chapter, here Barnabas goes to Saul, not trusting who Saul was or even who Saul is, but trusting in the God who had taken hold of Saul. While his brothers and sisters feared Saul, Barnabas trusted God. Barnabas grabbed him and spoke for him. We're told Barnabas shared Saul's story, his testimony, with others. Because of this, Saul stayed in Jerusalem. He preached in Jerusalem. He debated in Jerusalem, we're told in verse 29. And then once again, we're told that some of the people hearing this tried to kill him. And once again, Saul escaped eventually to his homeland of Tarsus, nearly 600 miles away from Jerusalem. You see, Saul now is living in the diaspora too constantly being dispersed because of what he believes, because of what he is proclaiming, because of who he is. And then that's where this pa- this week's passage ends. Saul's life now has become this question, who is he and what happened? And we'll continue to see people respond to the answer to this question. Some will be strengthened themselves by the power of Saul's testimony, by the power of the God who has grabbed Saul's life. And others will want him dead. Others will want to throw him in prison. Now, now, some of you might be thinking, uh, this is great. This is a great story of Saul, but, but I'm not Saul. I did not and will, you know, will likely not have a Damascus Road moment that is so mesmerizing and, and mind-blowing that it, it turns me blind. And then I'm healed by a stranger laying his hands on me and praying for me. And if, not, if I'm not going to have that in my life, then do I really need to ask or even answer the question, who am I? What happened? Because really, it doesn't seem like anything significant has happened in my own journey. And I get that. And I want you to know that that is okay. But I also want you to know, cling to the answer to those questions, whatever they might be, no matter how seemingly small they might be, no matter how seemingly unimpressive they might be. The man, whose, <clears throat> the man whose funeral I had the privilege to be part of last week, um, as far as I know, the skies never opened up over him, driving him to his knees, striking him with blindness. And yet, it was so crystal clear that God grabbed hold of his life. It might not have looked like anything spectacular on the outside, but man, God grabbed hold of his life. And I know, because I heard the stories of people sharing at the funeral, that he changed a lot of people around him because of God grabbing a hold of him. The couple who got married yesterday, for anyone for anyone who's gotten married, uh, you know, or who's experienced this, their union, the coming together of two people as one flesh on the wedding day of this occasion, it can look, you know, it can look actually really amazing and spectacular on the outside. But the day-to-day reality of this unity, it's far it's far from captivating. It's far from earth shaking. And yet, God takes hold of two lives and He brings them together and then He knits them closer to one another more and more each and every day, even through, or I would say, especially through the mundane realities of daily life. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, uh, a Cuban theologian, he once wrote God's call to us today may seem insignificant, but it may well be the beginning of an unexpected adventure of faith. Let me say that again because it's such a it's such a simple statement but I think it is so profound in its truth. God's call to us today may seem insignificant. But it may well be the beginning of an unexpected adventure of faith. An adventure looks different for each of us. But what is true is that once God takes a hold of your life, and it becomes apparent to those around you that God has taken hold of you. You may not be traveling into the synagogues of New York City proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, but God has taken hold of you and you must confront those questions and cling to those answers. Who am I and what happened? You know, I think of my own life, my own journey, kind of the, um, the absurdity of a kid who grew up idolizing Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, who wanted to be the next Rush Limbaugh and the next Sean Hannity, a guy who, who took pleasure in tearing others down if they didn't espouse the exact same political beliefs or values that, that he held. The absurdity of this guy who now today decided to plant a church with a group of men and women that would stand for anti-racism, and that would be fearless in this pursuit and in other pursuits. I think of, of that verse 21, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name of Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring Christians bound before the chief priests? I moved to New York City to pursue those dreams of being this big conservative talk radio star. And now I'm in New York City, by the grace of God, speaking out against the destructive rhetoric and the hate that that so many espouse. Standing against any system, trying to stand against any system that seeks to tear others down. I mean, who am I? What happened? And the answer to those questions is not about me. It's not about my power or anything like that, but it's about the God who took hold of my life and who completely and forever changed me. The same God who took a hold of that young man's life who passed away, who was a source of light and joy and determination for so many around. him, the same God who took a hold of two individuals and brought them together yesterday. The same God who takes hold of each of you. And I, I know the virtual experience is so weird, but I also love it because I can see you and I can see your names. And I can look at each of you and we could each talk about this reality. Moments in your life where the grip of God on you was so clear that it compelled you to do something you otherwise never would have done. And moments in your life where the grip of God on you was so clear, others around you, yourself included maybe, would look at you and say, who are you? What happened? With some of you on this call, I can think of these exact examples in your own journeys that you've shared with me. Examples, stories of this God who takes a hold of us as a community each week at, this, at, the, at the Lord's table. We can think of very specific personal individual experiences, but I do believe that there are stories that happen for us as a church each week at the Lord's table. That this is a ritual instituted by Jesus Christ The night before he was arrested, a ritual that forces us to stop in the middle of a worship service, to stop in the middle of our day, to stop and to acknowledge not just the God who has a hold of us, but why this God has a hold of us. This God, Jesus Christ, the same God that Saul has now turned to, that he is now proclaiming where God takes him. Jesus Christ came to this earth, he condescended to his creation, and out of a deep, Unmatched love for that creation, he faced death. And after facing death, he defeated death by rising from his grave and eventually ascending from his creation back into heaven where he continues to watch over us today and where he continues to take a hold of us today. We come to this table not to simply acknowledge this Christ, but we come to this table to acknowledge that this Jesus is the Messiah. Just as Saul is preaching in the synagogues now, this Jesus is the anointed one. And because of that truth, this table then is not simply looking back on his love and sacrifice, but it's confronting that truth in our own lives today. And it's propelling us forward expectantly for how this truth will change us and our world tomorrow. So as we think about that, as we think about as we think about that, let's pause for a moment. Offer up our own prayers, our own thoughts, our own frustrations, our own thanksgiving, whatever God might be placing on you at this moment. Let's pause. Let's prepare for the Lord's table and let's sit with God for this moment. This is a time of reflection. Use it however you feel comfortable using it.